This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, everybody. Happy Sunday. Good whatever the time of the day it is. This is a new episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse. I am your host. And we are back again for another new episode this week. Got that new new this week. And we got a big one today. So, you thought that we weren't going to talk about it. But when the greatest moment in the history of modern pop culture happens... You know we about to talk about it on this blog. But it is not going to be a roasting of Will Smith, it is, although it is going to be that. It is not just going to be complimenting Chris Rock, even though it is that. It is not just going to be a compliment on the status of our minds as young American people. It is that, but it's going to be so much more than that. I'm actually very, very happy with how this one turned out. i I got to give myself a pat on the back here. and I'm not one to do this, but I think this one's pretty damn good. I think it's going to be worth your time. going to be a little bit longer than usual. Not too much longer, hopefully, but a little bit longer. But I think that this moment, this time in history, is so pertinent and relevant to the time that we are living in, in our own heads, that I could not resist helping myself in talking about this. So, we are going to not bullshit, we're going to not waste any time, and we are going to get right into the shit. So here we go. Virality is a very hard thing to describe to people. And it's even harder to attempt to comprehend. Like many words in our society, it's been so hoarded out by excess that it's lost meaning over time. We actually just did that episode last week. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word viral is, quote, relating to or involving an image, video, piece of information, etc. that is circulated rapidly and widely from one internet user to another, end quote. Many things can go, quote, viral, according to this definition. It's much more of a catch-all than what some people, at least I, consider it to be. Kim Kardashian, quote, breaks the internet with seemingly every Instagram post. A new YouTuber or TikToker pops up about every five seconds. Logan Paul went viral for commenting on some dead dude in an Asian suicide forest. His brother went viral for KOing Tyron Woodley. It's really not that special anymore. Lots of people do it in our current cultural moment, which we're living in now. The most viral moment that I've ever seen in my life, and probably yours if you're really honest with yourself, was also my first viral moment. It took place at the 2009 MTV Music Video Awards when Taylor Swift was about to accept her trophy for Best Female Video for her song, You Belong With Me. As the songs blared from the speaker, she took the microphone and began to speak. However, 
Before she could complete her acceptance speech, a relatively unknown rapper named Kanye West came on the stage and said the following, quote, Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. The reaction was immediate. Both Beyonce and Taylor Swift were gassed. The crowd booed. Kanye flipped them off and was promptly escorted from the ceremony. He went into self-imposed exile and emerged by creating one of the greatest rap albums ever. Swift later did finish her speech. Now that moment truly broke the internet. Social media exploded. West was universally condemned for his actions. That less than a minute rant was circulated millions and millions of times. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of memes were made. Jimmy Carter weighed in for some bizarre reason. Barack Obama called him a jackass. A lot of people agreed with him. And it all happened live. No one saw it coming. No one would ever thought we would see something like it ever again. But then the 94th Academy Awards happened, and everything changed. Chris Rock walked on stage to present an award for the best documentary of the past year. In a scripted joke reel that was displayed in a teleprompter, Rock began to do what he's always done for a living. Tell jokes. He told, he told one about Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz. People laughed. And then the attention turned to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No, not the other ones. Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's shaved head, referring to her as Demi Moore's character in G.I. Jane. This is a relatively calm moment. People laughed, some albeit probably nervously. Lots of black women wear their hair short. Maybe not that short, but a lot, including Wanda Sykes, one of the hosts for the evening, do. No one seemed to make a big deal out of it. As it turns out, Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia, a condition that causes baldness. It certainly didn't bother Jada, she was recorded on video saying as much the previous week. But when Chris Rock makes a joke about it, things change. She didn't care for the joke made about her hair, or lack thereof. Her face, captured on camera for millions of people to see, although not that many millions, showed it all. Her husband, after turning towards her in laughter, saw it too. As Rock continued, something strange happened. Will Smith, who was sitting front row, hopped on the stage much like Kanye West, and began to walk towards him. Then, in the most shocking moment of live television ever captured, the man who once played Muhammad Ali in a movie wound up, slapped Chris Rock across the face, and walked back to his seat. Rock, in complete shock, rhyme, <laughs> recovered remarkably quickly. Will Smith just slapped the shit out of me, he said. Will Smith, however, was not amused. His face looked completely different than it had just one frame before. Blind rage overtook him. He looked like he was about to cry. His response to Chris Rock was one sentence that he repeated twice, quote, Keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth, end quote. Rock, noticing that he had somehow offended Jada's, Jada's husband, tried to calm the situation down. Will Smith, however, did not want to calm down. He succumbed to his rage. But stranger still, about 40 minutes later, Smith retook the stage and accepted the award for Best Actor for his role as Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena, in the film King Richard. He then apologized to everyone but Chris Rock, cried, and waxed philosophical about how everyone needs to be nicer to one another. He was later filmed singing his own music drunk at an after-party, seemingly having forgotten everything he had just said. Surprisingly, Outside of the total dumbassery that usually infiltrates this discourse, 
Smith got absolutely clapped for his actions. Nearly everyone outside of Ayanna Presley condemned him for his actions. But, interestingly enough, no one actually did anything about it. Other than people saying mean, mean words on Twitter directed at him, Smith didn't receive any punishment. Unlike Kanye West, he was not escorted from the building. He received no discipline for physically assaulting a man who did nothing other than make an offhand remark about his wife's haircut. He received no objection from the Academy, at least yet, for his expletive-filled and unhinged tirade towards a comedian who had committed the unforgivable crime of telling a joke. He made a total buffoon of him and his family on national television. Now, normally, I would be the last person to care about something like this. I think very little of most of the celebrity class in this country, especially those seemingly entitled as privileged and privileged as Will Smith. However, I do care about this one for multiple reasons, and one reason in particular. I think some of the things that were said by the majority of respondents towards the Chris Rock-Will Smith slapping incident are accurate. But that doesn't mean that their conclusion is. On November 9th, 2021, Will Smith released his memoir, Will, which was co-written alongside my personal writing idol and modern-day literary icon, Mark Manson. Manson did extensive research when writing the book with Smith. He was picky. He would only do the book under certain conditions. When he did, he traveled with him for years. He knew his family and inner circle incredibly well. He knew the ins and outs of his entire life. He knew more than most people would ever know about one of the most successful and diversely talented celebrities in the history of the world. When Manson and Smith announced the release of Will, they gave a preview of what to expect from the book. Manson's main response was unusually telling. The name of the book was to serve two purposes. First, Will is Will Smith's name, if you didn't know. Second, the one word that Mark Manson used to sum, sum up his opinion of Smith was just that. Will. The definition for the word will, according to the dictionary, is, quote, to cause or change, to determine by an act of choice, intend, purpose, decree, ordain, end quote. Basically, to be a voice of positive change, to carve your own path, to have the dedication and resolve to grit through adversity and uncomfortability to become a better and different person on the other side. For much of Will Smith's life, this is what needed to be done. Will was the first book I read in 2022, and it blew my mind. The man has lived a truly incredible life, a truly willful life. His childhood was rife with anxiety and trauma. He's been through a lot of tough times, and in all facets, he has come out of those events stronger and better. It was a true joy to read. I don't often get inspired a lot, but that book wanted me to strive, to dream. Which is why what made that fateful night at the Oscars so disheartening. Will Smith sucker punched me. In the immortal words of Stephen A. Smith, I have been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, and flat out deceived. He made me fall into the trap. What we saw that one night wasn't simply a blunder of extraordinary proportions. What we saw that night was a complete and total undoing of a very accomplished and successful man that turned out to be, like most in his position, incredibly emotionally fragile and soft. What makes what happened to Will Smith even more sad is that he and Jada have far from a perfect marriage. Just like any couple, they're a work in progress. I would think that her fucking her son's friend would qualify as elicit this type of response for, from her from him. Or the other men she's committed infidelity with. Maybe even what she had on Morpheus. But no, that's totally okay in his eyes. 
But what isn't okay is his cuckoldry getting put on display in front of everyone. That certainly cannot stand. But something else happened the moment Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock. That something was the complete opposite of what we saw from Will Smith, what the actual title of his memoir was referring to. Unequivocal resilience and toughness. What happened to Chris Rock when Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock? What was his reaction? It was to laugh, to smile. We've covered this before in relation to Chris Rock. Unlike Will Smith, Chris Rock's childhood was rife with much more bullying and discrimination and racism. Chris Rock had to become very tough very early. That was evident when Will Smith assaulted him. There was no retaliation. He didn't back up. He didn't do anything. He stood his ground to one of the most intimidating men in the history of world entertainment. He stood up to the bully. He didn't make a big deal out of it. He laughed, did his thing, and walked off stage. The responses between those two men couldn't have been more different. They're so different that it's shocking. One was defined by complete and utter weakness. The other was defined by strength and dominance. The reactions were completely polarized, completely intolerable to one another. I call this phenomenon the toughness gap. It is the gap between not only Chris Rock and Will Smith, but the entire American perspective on the topic of toughness. Chris Rock and Will Smith were only the demonstrators. All of us, in contrast, are the participants. The goal, especially in terms of men, should be to be as tough as we possibly can. We'll get to all this later, but let's first start by telling you what this is not. This isn't false machismo. This isn't being a bully. This isn't degrading women or the weak. It is the exact opposite of those things. It resides on the other side of the toughness gap. The goal of highlighting both sides of the toughness gap will be to bridge from the weak side of the toughness gap to the strong side of the toughness gap. To embark on this journey, we will need to check off several key boxes. First, we will need to see the weak side of the toughness gap and why it can lure us away. Next, we will examine the strong side of the toughness gap and why we should pursue it. Finally, we will break down how to bridge the toughness gap and move from the weak side to the strong side. And, a disclaimer, no Chris Rocks were harmed during the making of this blog post. Only the one that got slapped the shit out of that phrase is going to come up like 20 more times, I promise you. I got a new water bottle, by the way. I don't know if you guys can hear that like whistling noise it does. I guess it's to avoid something. I, I don't know, like wind bristles. I, I don't fucking know. It whistles when I drink, so I, I will probably have to use a glass from now on. But okay, here we go. Part one, the weak side. Around a month ago, I received a strange direct message in my workplace messaging system. She asked me if I had time that day to, quote, talk. I recognized the woman's name, but was oblivious to her role. I pulled up our internal company directory in my internet browser and casually searched for her. I didn't expect to find anything out of the ordinary. But when she came up, it was the one title that every employee fears of sliding into their DMs. Human resources. And no, not the fun one that just came out on Netflix. My heart dropped. What could I have possibly done? I didn't feel in trouble. I wasn't reprimanded by my management or confronted by any of my coworkers. We'd only been going into the office for a week at that point. Perhaps some weird form of cyberbullying? I was perplexed. I responded to the message immediately and scheduled time with her on a blank slot in her calendars about an hour after she had reached out. I was terrified when I opened up my Zoom room. 
I tried my best not to show it, but I'm sure I didn't do as well as I would have liked to have thought. When she entered the room, she dropped the nuke. Someone had filed a violation against me. My stomach bottomed out. I tried to remain stoic, but a flash of panic inevitably swept my face. Thankfully, the woman was very nice. She could definitely have been a lot more mean than she was. That's what happens to a lot of these folks when they do this line of work. It's a necessary portion of the workplace, especially in the established and large companies where plenty of things have gone, have enough room to go wrong and have gone wrong. They're not Nazis, but they're not Toby Flendersons either, and thank God for that. After my momentary cold sweat, I attempted, again, probably horribly, to calmly ask my HR representative about the violation. She explained that it had been filed anonymously about two weeks ago in relation to something I had said on this blog and this podcast. That anonymous person had informed my HR representative that they had been offended by an anonymous post on my blog. The origin of their offense was that they believed that I had mentioned them anonymously in an unflattering manner. After my HR representative was finished in her explanation, I could only feel one emotion. Confusion. Listen to that last paragraph again. Remind, remind, yeah, rewind me if you have the patience and the decency to listen to my voice again. It's hard to comprehend as it is, so let me translate for you. An anonymous person had gotten offended by my anonymous blog post because they had believed that I was talking about them without their desired way of me talking about them without me even knowing who they are. Now, if you've been absorbing my content for even a somewhat decent amount of time, you would know how absolutely absurd this statement is. Never once have I name-dropped a single person in my personal network on this medium. The closest I've ever come would be my parents, and even then I've never used their actual names. I always attempt, to the best of my ability, to refer them to, or refer to them, excuse me, in the abstract. It's never in the specific, but always in the general. I say a colleague or a coworker or a friend, but nothing in greater detail. Even when I do mention these folks, I always try to ask. This person, whoever they are, would have no reason whatsoever to even guess that this one specific post was about them. In fact, I hardly ever talk about anything specific at my day job at all, or anyone specific at my day job at all. I guarantee you, if you're even a decently consistent reader or listener, you could probably pin down which post that person in my HR rep were referring to. It's honestly not that hard. I knew immediately when she said it which post she was referring to. Like the separation of church and state, I tried to keep both my lives as distant as possible. I inevitably have to talk about it sometimes due to the fact that work is a large part of my and anyone's life. It's relatable to talk about work. People do it all the time. But there's more to this. If it's relatable to talk about work, it sure as hell is relatable to talk about the people at work. Most of the ins and outs of our day jobs are very boring and mundane. We make cold calls, we send emails, we conduct meetings, we make Excel sheets, we create design models. It's hard to hammer the table when you're three, fo- three vodka crayons deep on a Saturday night with your girlfriends about the ins and outs of your supply chain data model. It's much easier to talk about how much of a bitch Shannon was to you when you sent her the supply chain data model for your review. And honestly, why shouldn't you talk about how much of a bitch Shannon was? You worked hard on that model. You spent a lot of time on it. You did the activity to the best of your ability and she poo-pooed it. Now, how about you go fuck yourself, actually? You're not just going to let it go. Now when you know it was better than how she treated it, you're going to vent your frustration. You're going to get your emotions out in a constructive manner. You're going to act like a normal human being. The absolute truth of the matter is that we all participate in this type of activity. We, people, all talk about people. 
Some of the most vivid memories of my childhood are my dad coming home after working a 12-hour day and being pissed off about how people didn't work as hard as he did, or my mom coming home and being angry and sad about how her patient treated her at work. They talked about the positives a lot, too. My parents were very blessed to have and still have many good co-workers and bosses. It's remarkable how I found myself doing the same thing now that I'm in the workforce. But no matter what the opinion of the person speaking is, there's a common reality among everything we say about every person on the planet. Not a single one of those people gets to control what you say. I don't care who you are. You could be President Biden or the person who cleans President Biden's toilet after he takes a shit. No one gets to control what you feel or say about you. No one. They don't get to muzzle you. They cannot wield any power over that domain over your, of your life. The most sacred of our God-given rights as human beings is the, the right of freedom of expression and thought. It was so important that it was, quite literally, the first right that the founders of our country put in its most important document. That was done with a purpose. The founders, no matter what you think of them in hindsight, weren't stupid. They knew that without this fundamental principle, tyranny would ensue. That's why they did the whole American Revolution thing, if you weren't aware. This story understates a very bizarre point about something that's currently going on in American culture. Most often in today's world, we are seeing people attempting to use what people say about them as weapons. But interestingly, these people are using a different tactic than before. It is one thing to get offended by someone saying something directly to you. If you go up to Shannon at work and say that she's a bitch because she didn't like your supply chain data model, that's one thing. But to discuss Shannon's bitchiness about our supply chain data model to your friends over vodka crayons when you're off the clock and she's nowhere near you is completely different. One could be considered offensive. The other could be considered Orwellian. This phenomenon, in my opinion, is the genesis of the weak side of the toughness gap because this is weakness personified. And why? Because it shows that you're trying to do something impossible. It is a foolish attempt to enforce your own method of control over someone else based on your own ability to not be able to regulate your own emotional state. No confident or sane person would do this. Only immature and weak people attempt to control and dominate people. No one who has a strong command over their emotional arsenal would dare to venture into such dangerous terrain. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word tough is, quote, difficult to accomplish, resolve, endure, or deal with capable of enduring strain, hardship, or severe labor, end quote. Notice the only word repeated in both of those definitions, endure. Enduring, meaning to outlast what is happening to you, which likely will be some form of suffering, is the link that binds both definitions of the word toughness together. Thus, it is the crux upon which the definition should be based upon, all other things being equal. Endure is also derived from the word endurance, which is most commonly associated with long-form exercise. You have to be tough to last through grueling workouts, which is why the word is often so associated with that activity. Emotions are incredibly hard things to endure. We talked about them during our focus on the two E's. And like my professor said, if you cannot control them, or at least direct them in a more optimistic direction than not, you can live a better life than most, particularly when those who cannot regulate their emotional state properly get involved. Enduring emotional highs or lows among all emotional states is the key. The ability to outlast what you are currently feeling for the return of something greater from that investment is what we must focus on. That is the reward that emotional regulation and stability provides. However, when you cannot do this, when you take it outside yourself, you deliberately compromise your own state of being in order to conform to someone else's. The key to this condition is control. 
You cannot enforce whatever you want to feel onto other people. You cannot do that. It's a violation of their individual rights and their dignity as a human being. To pretend that it isn't, you, that you know better than they do, that you can impose whatever you want that person to feel upon that person because you don't agree with them, is immature at best and tyrannical at worst. There are a very large list of people that attempted to and did these type of activities, and they're generally not looked upon very fondly. Which leads us back to the slap. This is the key differentiator of the weak side of the toughness gap, which is exemplified by Will Smith when he slapped the shit out of Chris Rock. Think back. Why did Will Smith slap Chris Rock? Will Smith slapped Chris Rock because he made an innocent and not that funny joke about his wife's hair. The joke was not aimed at Will Smith, and it wasn't aimed at Jada Pinkett Smith either. Chris Rock did not do this out of malice. Translation, Will compromised his own state of joy for a joke that was on behalf of someone else. He let someone else dictate how he lived and how he will likely be perceived, fair or unfair, for a long time afterwards. Will Smith signaled to everyone that night that no matter how many bad guys he caught or how many aliens he zapped with Tommy Lee Jones, that he had no backbone and no spine. This was not an act of chivalry. This was an act of attention-grabbing insecurity. To be fair, Mark Manson pushed back on this in a post in his blog that he penned last week. He referenced the multitude of sources from their book that Smith's biggest insecurity throughout his life had been an inability to protect the women in his life from harm. I read the book and can confirm that this was true. But that does not make what he did to Chris Rock even relatively appropriate. Words are not violence, especially not the words that Chris Rock spoke that fateful night in Los Angeles. Because Will Smith wasn't tough enough to deal with the consequences of his wife yelling at him after an award ceremony, he proceeded to act on that opinion regardless of how he felt. Will Smith didn't give a single fuck about Chris Rock's joke. Remember, he laughed at it before he saw Jada getting upset. He acted out of his lowest instinct of self-preservation to avoid his wife getting angry at him. And, like we said before about all marriages, theirs is far from perfect. Will has done a lot of bad things, and so has Jada, and so has everyone else that has ever been married to anyone ever. No one is perfect. Everyone has problems. No matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like, this is the universal reality of life as a human being. The ultimate sign of weakness is when you relinquish your sovereignty. When you allow people to dictate your emotional state, it shows that you have no capacity to govern your own mental state as a functioning adult in that society. Maturity over emotional intelligence is the sole barrier that separates children from their parents. It doesn't have to get much more complicated than that. Adults are able to deal with their adversities that they are handed with in life in mature and proper fashion. Children are not able to do so. Age isn't the factor that delineates those two pop demographics of people. Maturity is. The weak side of the toughness gap is defined by this notion. Therefore, the opposite side of the toughness gap, the strong side, is defined by its inverse. That inverse will be defined by a man by many names, the most notorious of which went through the first one of the first attempts at modern-day mob cancellation. Tommy Buns. On January 12, 2018, Comedian Tom Segura released his special, Disgraceful, on Netflix. Segura had been on fire recently. With his podcast he co-hosted with his wife, Your Mom's House, and his tours across the country all reaching large audiences and levels of success. 
Additionally, his friendships with other comedians led to plenty of other opportunities for appearances in clubs and podcasts, furthering his already massive reach in one of the most competitive industries on the planet. Segura is known to push the envelope in a lot of ways. He borderline exploits his parents by airing their dirty laundry on his podcasts. He laughs hysterically at gruesome injuries and most likely gets you to laugh along with him. He talks about the colors of his shit and the desire for his wife to eat his ass. There's really no boundaries for him. In the words of the great and powerful Andrew Schultz, if it's funny, then it's fair game. Tom Segura has managed to escape, had managed to escape the wrath of the anti-ass eaters and injury sympathizers for the entirety of his career. However, in what was to be one of the first attempts at comedian cancellation, he finally stepped on an active landmine. In Disgraceful, Tom Segura told a bit about a fight he'd witnessed while walking through a park. The fight occurred between a black and a white dude that quickly escalated due to the racial slurs hurled at the black guy by the white guy, like those racial slurs. Naturally, the black dude got upset, and the two headed out in the park with Segura's morbid ass watching Glee. But this was not the point of the bit. The point of the bit was to work backwards from the bit. Segura, instead of focusing the bit on the fight, used it to make a point about something else. Segura had observed, like most of us, that wordplay is changing. Some words are deemed acceptable, while some words are deemed to be not acceptable. Segura made the obvious point that saying the N-word to a black person is a very heinous and wrong thing to do. But, outside of Peaky Blinders, the words Polak and Wop aren't deemed offensive anymore. They used to be, but now they are not. And Segura kept going. He went down the rabbit hole onto more, quote, unacceptable words and things to replace them with. We're now doing things, by, we're doing these things now by referring to women as bleeders because apparently the word woman is too offensive now. And it was at this point that Segura's proverbial leg got blown off by the IUD landmine. IED landmine. IUD is definitely something different. IED landmine. He arrived at the subject of people with special needs. Segura said that dis some disabilities, contrary to popular belief, are funny, namely, quote, foreign accent syndrome. The last part was cut out of the trailer for the special. He also said that instead of calling a person, quote, retarded in reference to, for them, to, to them being stupid, you could say that they, quote, have an extra chromosome, referring to people who suffer from Down syndrome. Segura was tarred and feathered by our activist class immediately after the special aired on Netflix. People began to blow his social media up and say that he should kill himself. They said that he was an awful person. Over 100,000 people signed a petition to have all of his specials removed from Netflix. Parents and families of special needs people wrote article after article on how Segura had deliberately attacked someone that was in a legitimately protected class and that was a legitimate victim of circumstance that had nothing to do with how these folks go about living their lives. They didn't let up for weeks. Now, some things, some things need to be said here. I'm a fan of stand-up comedy. I'm a massive fan of the type of stand-up comedy that most people find deeply offensive. I don't care when it's aimed at me or it's aimed at someone else. Repeating the great and powerful Schultz, I just care that it's funny. When a joke is funny and offensive, I don't care. But when a joke is unfunny and offensive, that's where I draw a hard line in the sand. That being said, I do believe that there are lines that we need to draw. We can't have complete chaos. I believe that when there are two groups of people that should be there, that there are, excuse me, two groups of people that should be completely off limits when doing stand-up comedy: people with disabilities and people with diseases. I don't think making fun of someone with cancer in a mean-spirited way is funny. I don't think mocking someone because they're legitimately mentally retarded is funny, either. I think that they're very cheap ways to get a laugh. 
Making fun of someone who has no ability to defend themselves in proper fashion is not a good way to do comedy, in my humble and probably very unfunny opinion. The problem with the situation with Tom Segura, however, is that he didn't do those things. Tom Segura, to the contrary of what the mob said about him, did not make fun of people with Down syndrome. He was making a joke about words. He simply used an analogy and an illusion to bring the joke to a close. Tom Segura did not make fun of special needs people because the point of the bit was not to make fun of special needs people. In response to this, Tom, Tom Segura instead doubled down. He didn't want to portray himself as a victim, so he didn't apologize or tell people how to feel. He was okay with not winning. He said that it wasn't appropriate to try to one-up a family with a disabled family member. He didn't want them to feel anything that would benefit him. He wanted them to vent. He was okay with being the bad guy. He told a joke that didn't hit like he wanted and he slipped up. It happens to all stand-up comedians. When people are super upset about something, he said, just let them stay upset. Let them do their thing and let them lose their shit. Joe Rogan, on whose podcast these words were said, made a crucial point. No matter what the word is, you cannot change the intent of the person saying the word. For example, even if the white dude who called the black dude in the park the N-word didn't use the N-word, he probably still didn't like black people. Regardless if Tom Segura told a joke involving Down syndrome or people with cerebral palsy, he was making a joke about changing language. You cannot change the heart of a person just because the words of the person do. They are not, have never been, and will never be the same thing. At all. Tom Segura's quote, R-word controversy, stands as one of the first major outbreaks of modern cancel culture. It was when the world... It was when the world of its one of its first one of the world's first looks into the monster of craziness that was about to be unleashed on the rest of the world. But in defense of the people who that wanted to cancel Tom Segura, this attempt was was more legitimate than the recent ones. And I should know because I was one of them. As many of you probably know, I have a sister with autism. I've talked with about her a lot. Most of all of her closest friends throughout her entire life have extremely debilitating disabilities. I grew up surrounded by all types from people who were slightly socially awkward to those who had to have their parents change them three times a day as adults. I have a deep love and affinity for this group of people. I'm an ambassador for a massive youth special needs organization as we speak. Almost all the money I've ever fundraised on my own dime has gone to charities to help these groups of people. When I saw what Tom Segura quote said, I wanted him to get blown off the face of the planet. I wanted his career destroyed. I wanted him to never do a set of stand-up comedy ever again. I blew up my social media posts to things like Autism Awareness Month and lectured people over the internet on how they needed to do and support exactly what I did and supported in either to prove their virtue, in order to prove their virtue, I should say. I used to advocate for the quote, R word, as well. I used to tell all of my friends who said that they were, they were quote, intolerant if they used it. It was a very lowbrow way of referring, people, referring to people who were dumb, I told them. You can do better than that, I said. When they go low... We go high, I and Michelle Obama said. But now I do none of these things. I think Autism Awareness Month, and every other one for that matter, is an incredibly detrimental element of our culture. The world is too aware, as we've covered before. I don't tell any of my friends to use certain types of language, except when it's N-word level horrible. I don't attempt to convince them that my feelings should matter when they're talking about a certain subject. When Tom Segura stood firm with his jokes against the mob, he exemplified perfectly what the strong side of the toughness gap looks like. He did not let the one thing that defines the weak side of the toughness gap define him. The relinquishment of his sovereignty. When I used to complain about the use of the quote R word, 
what I was really doing was allowing the opinions of others to take me out of my sovereignty. In actuality, I was willingly giving it up to them. I was not in control over my own emotions around the subject. Whether or not the subject was personal to me or anyone else or not was irrelevant. What was very relevant was that I was willingly subjecting others to conform. I was poorly attempting to wrap around whatever my sense of virtue was. Because all other things being equal, I didn't care how those people felt. I wanted to dominate. I wanted to be in control. Translation, I was weak. I was not strong enough to allow others and their opinions to coexist with me. So, naturally, I wanted those others' opinions destroyed. Tolerance, as we've covered before, is a myth. No one is truly, quote, tolerant because everyone has values. Lots of those values, and I would probably argue all of them in a lot of cases, have direct opposites, which therefore make it impossible to tolerate them if you truly value anything at all. So, we're stuck with a dilemma here. Selective intolerance is both good and bad. It is good because it is an automatic display of our values. It is bad because our selective intolerance cannot and should not appease everyone. So the question of what defines the strong side of the toughness gap is this. How do we balance this dichotomy? The answer is, you guessed it, dichotomous. We need to be able to partially do both. You need selective intolerance, but you also need comparative value advantage, the allowance and coexistence of other values. Just because you are selectively intolerant to other people's values does not mean that you need not coexist with them. If that were the case, America would have imploded within like at least five seconds. Aaron Burr did shoot and kill Alexander Hamilton in 1804, if you remember. There were, if we think times are wild now, imagine if duels were still legal. The dichotomy, in my opinion, needs to be balanced as such. You need to have selective intolerance, but only at the personal level. You cannot enforce it broadly. You cannot make other people entitled to how you feel on something, no matter how much you believe it or not, because you cannot rob a person of their sovereignty to value what they value. It's wrong on a moral level. It's the sign of a tyrannical person who cannot tolerate dissent. This is why our culture seems so weak from so many different angles right now. This is why other countries and stronger people within our own country are able to take advantage of so many others. If people are too busy robbing other people's sovereignty, do they really give a fuck about their own? A rational person would probably argue that no, they don't. And that person would be right. We cannot value the destruction of someone else's sovereignty to assert our own. That would be a violation of the law of comparative value advantage, which is never a good thing to violate in the first place. Let's revisit the slap. But this time, let's visit the strong side of that version of the toughness gap, the one that was exemplified beautifully by Chris Rock. When Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock, he had every reason to follow up with something that would attempt to rob Will Smith of his, probably tyrannical, sovereignty. He had the microphone in front of the biggest big shots in Hollywood, he could have gone off on everything that had just happened to him. He had just gotten publicly emasculated by an even more emasculated man on live television. We've known for a long time that the Oscars are in the toilet. The data's in. But I would hazard a guess that the data would be in the far back of Chris Rock's mind during the sheer absurdity of that moment. Maybe it wasn't the data that made Chris Rock act like he did, but let's thank God that it was something. When Will, Sm when Will Smith slapped the shit out of Chris Rock, he didn't do anything other than his job. He went about his business. He didn't try to fight Will Smith. He didn't say anything mean. He didn't even make another joke about him and his wife. He responded like a man. He showed courage and restraint in response to Will Smith's blind and cuckolded rage. 
Chris Rock did not allow the petty actions of Will Smith any room to dictate how he went about his life. He refused to press charges afterwards. He didn't demand that he leave the event. And sure, he probably felt things afterwards. He probably felt disrespected and just a teensy bit betrayed. He was probably even a little bit afraid. He does have a comedy world tour coming up, if you weren't aware. But he didn't stoop to Will Smith's level by reciprocating it. He refused to attempt to dominate and take Will Smith's sovereignty. He stood on the strong side of the toughness gap, like Tom Segura and many other brave souls, and took what was given to him. Afterwards, he stared the lesser beings in the face and made them realize on what side of the toughness gap they stood. And, deep down, I think they all know. It's up to them to be able to look at themselves in the mirror. But what happens afterwards is far more important. When you realize that you reside on the weak side of the toughness gap, your primary objective should be to walk across to the strong side. Part 3. The Bridge The hard thing to understand about toughness and the toughness gap is the contrast and visibility of all of it. With the slap, for example, Will Smith got all the attention paid to him. Chris Rock, even though he got the shit slapped out of him, was not nearly talked about as much as Will Smith was. It is a common pattern within the spheres of culture and influence that weakness is now elevated and toughness is suppressed. The reason why it is so hard to get people to bridge the toughness gap and move from the weak to the strong side is that the strong side of the toughness gap is not nearly as popular as the weak side. It doesn't get talked about very much, and much of the examples usually fizzle out within a few days of their occurrence. Thus, it is incredibly important that we as individuals take, a, take the onus upon ourselves to actively seek out people who stand on the strong side of the toughness gap. Much like our relationship with knowledge and the truth, the people who tell it straight are hard to find. The people who exude true toughness are equally hard to find. However, when they are found, their actions are so compellingly individual, compelling individually that it's hard to overcome how powerful their example is. This is why people in positions of power who purposely elevate weakness want these people to go away. They see them as threats, and for good reason. For example, I don't think the name Gabby Clark will ring many bells for most of you. She hasn't been talked about very much. Her name didn't trend on social media for very long. Those same people in powerful positions that I mentioned earlier did their best to try to scrub her from the system, and for good reason. Gabby Clark is a window widowed single mother who sent her son William to a chartered school called Democracy Prep in the state of Nevada. On December 22nd of 2020, Gabby Clark filed a lawsuit against Democracy Prep for what she saw as a blatant violation of her son's First Amendment rights. The specific violation read that the suit was filed specifically for, quote, repeatedly compelling a speech involving intimate matters of race, gender, sexuality, and religion, end quote. We've heard numerous cases of this in the past year or so. However, the case of Gabby and William Clark is probably the most disturbing of all of them. The reason for this, per usual, comes from their leadership. Democracy Prep is run by a man named Adam Johnson, who acts as its executive director. The funny thing is that Adam Johnson, even though he runs a school, does not care about the edu educational welfare of the children he has responsibility over. Instead, he cares about being a mouthpiece and a puppeteer over these children. Adam Johnson and Democracy Prep were lauded by the Charter School Authority, which is supposedly the, the body that governs charter schools, for, quote, making anti-racism a top priority, end quote. Johnson, however, took it a step further. 
He had recently unveiled a five-year plan to make anti-racism the top priority at the school. This is a very odd thing to say when you're running an educational institution. Shouldn't the education of children be the top priority in a school? Who decides what is, quote, anti-racist or not? Do the children get treated fairly or, quote, equitably, as so many like to put it nowadays? Adam Johnson never answered any of these questions. He had already given out the marching orders. He had already been lauded by his governing body. Which leads us to William Clark. William Clark, along with all of his peers, was enrolled in a class entitled, quote, The Sociology of Change, which was taught by a woman named Catherine Bass. Normally, this would be an interesting class to take. Sociology is a very interesting subject, as is change. However, when run by power-hungry ideologues like Catherine Bass and Adam Johnson, things can deteriorate quite quickly. The student demographics of this specific school are as follows. 63.8% of the children were black, 30.2% of the children were Hispanic, and 2.2% of the children were white. William Clark is biracial. His mother, Gabby, is black, and his deceased father was white. During this class, which was taught virtually due to the beer virus, Catherine Bass, who was white, encouraged the students to write down their identity in a shared Google Doc based on the following categories. Race slash ethnic slash nationality, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, disabilities, religion, age, and language. This list is private, the Google slide wrote. No one will see this, they told the kids. But this, of course, was a blatant lie. Of course kids could see it. The teacher could see it. They're the ones who gave access to the accounts in the first place. They did give the kids the option to opt out, but according to the PowerPoint, it would create a, quote, psychologically abusive dilemma and a, quote, hostile educational environment. The slides continued to get worse. The next one was to, quote, undo and unlearn internalized beliefs, end quote, such as building community and supporting its leaders, being proud of history, contributions, and potential, and developing the strength to question authority. Among the institutions that supported these beliefs were the family, which supposedly reinforced racist and homophobic prejudice, education, which supposedly highlighted monetary inequality, resources, and opportunities, religion, which supposedly enforced homophobic prejudice and told people that there was such a thing as morality, economics, which supposedly oppressed basically everything, and government, which was bad because it, like, held up the rule of law and stuff. If this sounds like an Aldous Huxley novel, I assure you it's not. I pulled all, it all from the evidence that was cited in the case. It's publicly available. It's how I got it. William Clark, to his immense credit, refused to participate in these activities while at school. He refused to admit that he was a bad person because of the color of his skin. It didn't matter that he was half black and was, he was being raised by a single black mother. He fell, I guess, partially into that 2.2% of people, so he had to be destroyed. This young man's bravery was rewarded by the school with a means of destruction. William Clark was punished by the school. He was not allowed to graduate from his high school with the other students because he didn't bend the knee to the insanity. He was labeled a, quote, oppressor for not wanting to participate in discriminatory and racist activity. Gabby Clark, to her immense credit, had his back fully. She immediately filed suit and took all the bullets that a black woman who stands up to the social justice hysteria takes. She was called things like a traitor and an Uncle Tom. This apparently is par for the course when a mother defends her child. But nonetheless, she pressed on. Gabby and William Clark are lights in this world. We should all commend them for their outrageous levels of courage. Gabby and William Clark refused to have their sovereignty taken from them. 
They stand on the strong side of the toughness gap because they did not allow the opinions and motives of others to corrupt their souls. Contrary to popular belief, Gabby and William Clark are not heretics. They're not conspiracy theorists or crazy people. They're decent people. Good people. They simply had the courage to stand on the right side of the toughness gap and show the way for others to follow, like Tom Segura and Chris Rock. The first step to bridging the toughness gap is to recognize where your control lies and where it does not. Doing an assessment of your locus of control means two things. First, it is recognizing where your general locus of control is. Do you think most things are in your control or out of it? The first option is most definitely the better mindset to have. Ownership is everything, if you remember. Knowing that you can control most of what happens in your life based on how you live your life and the choices you make is an incredibly powerful thing. Internalizing your locus of control and outsourcing as few things as possible to what is the most crucial part is or is what is the most crucial part to start your bridging of the toughness gap. The second aspect of control is knowing specifically what you can control and what you cannot control. This must take place after you decide to internalize your locus of control because then you can begin the sorting process of how to either bring, bring things in to improve them or simply discard the ones that don't. This will allow them to allow you to draw effective emotional boundaries with yourself. Additionally, it will allow you to draw boundaries with your words and actions that force you to interact with the world. The reason why this is so crucial is that it gives you insight into what sh you should or should not affect your emotional state. Boundaries are the key to what should affect your emotional state. If they can be controlled, then maybe they can affect you. If they cannot be, you should not let them. Chris Rock didn't let Will Smith's cuckoldry and viciousness that eventually slapped the shit out of him dictate his behavior. Tom Segura did the same thing when he stood against the horde of angry people that wanted him erased from Netflix. Gabby and William Clark did the same thing to all the blowback they received for standing up against racism. Now, how did all these people feel? Did all these people feel things? Certainly. Emotions are neutral things. They're neither bad nor good. They just are. But what matters is how we respond to them. Because that is true toughness. That is what sovereignty is. None of those people allowed their sovereignty to be taken from them. They all continued to do what they knew was right and what was best for them and the people in their immediate care. They live their lives as individuals, which is how you should live. The people that stand up to the mob and live as beautiful and personal people they all should be lauded for have courage. Immense courage. We should all attempt to be more like them. Following your delineation of control, you need to live and practice selective intolerance. This is the key to effectively rid your boundaries of anything perva pervasive to you so that you can keep what is inside your boundaries safe, namely your mind and your soul. However, some key distinctions must be made again so this can be done correctly. Selective intolerance is simply knowing what you value and deciding what you deem important. This is, by no means, a license to be openly intolerant and succumb to similar headassery to what Will Smith and other members of the mob did. Do not actively pursue the enforcement of this into the world. The key is to know what is going on inside your own head so that you can properly live your life without succumbing to the insanity. Instead of pursuing your values being the dominant ones and robbing other people of their sovereignty, what you should be pursuing is self-control and self-governance. You and you alone are the master and regulator of your own emotional state. This is what people who stay on the weak side of the toughness gap fail to understand. They fail to internalize their locus of control, which leads them to not practicing selective intolerance for the simple reason that they do not know any better. Your life will get remarkably more peaceful once you decide to be selectively intolerant towards other values that you do not value. 
Those things can come and go and pass around you, and you won't have the opportunity to give a shit. You'll have bigger things to worry about. You won't worry about, quote, missing things or, quote, being uninformed. It simply won't matter to you. We're so reactionary in our generation and in our culture. We let so many things rob us of our sovereignty. What you should desire is that while everyone around you is succumbing to hysteria, you will be calm. Chris Rock, Tom Segura, and the Clarks were able to do this to great effect. They're much better off for it. They're much happier and much more at peace than most of all of those other people that acted differently. Your headspace is the most valuable real estate you can own. Don't rent it out to other people that attempt to put out the, all the fires they start with their own piss. It gets gross after a while, trust me. Finally, you must realize that this is something that must be consistently worked and regulated. The weak side of the toughness gap is very appealing. It will constantly pull and tug at you as you try to, cro try to cross back over. You must remain vigilant. If the slap proved everything, it showed that we, or anything, it showed that we cannot get complacent when it comes to our mental fortitude. Like The Rock said, rent is due every day. That's true for success, and it's true for the well-being of our mental state and our sovereignty. It's something that must be earned. You can't buy it, pay for it, or anything else. You need to fight to keep sane. It's the most crucial and valuable thing you can be in our current era. So the question is, what makes a person tough? The answer, going through tough things. They must be undertaken deliberately and with brute force. Hardship and suffering are hard things to come by in the real world today. We softened up so much of society, and for good reason. But the value for hard things must be continued on into the future. Much of the world's progress has been toward alleviating hardship and suffering, and this is a good thing. But it's a bad thing when we don't replace it with things that can teach us those same lessons. We definitely shouldn't be starving and caving each other's heads in with rocks, but we shouldn't be injecting ourselves with Jenny's ice cream and passing out in a dope-sick-ass dope stupor in the parking lot of an HEB either. This is my hypothesis of what happened and what will continue to happen for Will Smith and the rest of our celebrity class. Will Smith has gone through a lot in his life, much like we all have. But the tense of that verb is key. Will Smith underwent suffering, but he has not undergone suffering in a long time. For case in point, look no further to the incident at the Oscars. If that qualifies as suffering, I couldn't have imagined the tantrum he threw when Jada told him he blew his son's best friend while he was filming Bad Boy 7 Million. But this isn't just a Will Smith problem. This is another version of the true cost of greatness. A trade-off is, is that we lose the edge that we had. We lose the grit, the resolve, the toughness. We do so much to cross the toughness gap. We work so hard to make it to the strong side. And yet, when we get and stay there, we deliberately pull ourselves back over to the weak side. It's a horrible paradox. But the good news is that deliberately exposing yourself to hardship is the best way that you can manifest toughness in your everyday life. Much like many things, it's not about getting there. It's about staying there. One good way to stay on the strong side of the toughness gap is just that. Being tough. Doing hard things. Keeping your edge in the mentality that sharpens it. It is up to you what that looks like in your eyes. But once you lock it down and act upon it, you can look upon the weak side of the toughness gap with a smile for the simple reason that you're not there. And you should. The grass, to the contrary of most of these analogies, is not greener on the other side.
Toughness is the most irreplaceable commodity in the world. But the path to cross the toughness gap is a treacherous one. The strong side of the toughness gap is defined by the difficult, the weak side by the passive. One requires strain, the other obedience. To bridge the toughness gap, one must know what they can control, what they should value, and how they can maintain their sovereignty. Do not do things that make you stay on the weak side of the toughness gap. Only encourage yourself and those you care for to cross towards the strong side of the toughness gap. The world is much harder when you're weak. Anyone who convinces you otherwise is either ignorant or a liar. And from my experience, those two demographics of people are people you should stray far away from. Because if not, you could get schooled by an anamorphic zebra. And even though Will Smith is a cuck, you're still not Will Smith. All right. Okay, everybody, that is the toughness gap. I'm pretty, I haven't made up a principle in a long time, so I'm very, very glad that I made that trademarked. It's not actually trademarked, but don't steal it. Okay, we have a really, really good interview coming up this week. I'm very, very excited about the next episode of the Conversation Series. It's coming up on the next Sunday. I cannot wait to show it to you guys to kind of have that all figured out for everyone and really make sure that we're you know doing this right and making sure that we're getting you guys great people and truly guests that I would want up featured on other podcasts. This week's guest is no exception, so I'm so excited for you guys to meet this person, hear about what this person has going on, what that person means to me, what I think he can, that person can mean to the broader culture, all that other stuff. So until that time, own the day, open your mind, talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?